Our hope is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to our first live School of Christie in a long time. And uh, welcome to also to those who are watching live stream. And uh, we're picking up with our reading of Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And um, this section might seem a little bit more theological or a little bit more obscure that we're looking at tonight. But I think he has a good purpose in doing so. It's something that we sort of take for granted when we think about Mass and going to Mass and participating, that he wants to clarify with us tonight. The title of the section is called Mimicry or Liturgical Form. Are we simulating something in the way that we are engaging in Mass? Is that what Mass is, or is there something different? What do we mean when we say liturgy? as opposed to passion play or something like the Stations of the Cross. Are we doing, are we sort of uh, enacting something in memory of Christ or does it take us much further than that? And, uh, and so we w would want to move away from this idea of simply observing something or uh, at Mass and to, to be drawn into a mystery that we're celebrating. And this is what Gordini, this is a little bit more refined than what he's done in the past, but this is where he's trying to lead us tonight. Again, my, my uh, little introduction is the red italicized print, and then we'll jump into the text. While well, the title of this reflection may seem obscure, what it addresses is a point of understanding that is often confused in our thinking about what we are participating in at Mass. The Mass is no mere simulation, regardless of how permanent the form of commemoration it seems to be to us. It is not an action that commemorates certain events vividly and activates the emotions and senses of the individual, as many forms of devotion, such as the way of the cross, way of the cross, or passion plays. And so there's, we're not just simulating events. The way of the cross, I think, is the perfect example. It's a beautiful devotion, uh, but that's what it is. It's a devotion. We're calling to mind uh, certain aspects of the mystery of Christ, and in particular of his passion. And there are prayers associated with that, and it can deepen and liven our faith. It can stir our emotion and stir our devotion for the Lord. But there's a difference between this and liturgy that he's trying to make, uh, make clear to us. Even adoration, he says, does not capture the permanence of the act of Jesus' commemoration into which the believer is meant to enter and into which we should actively participate. So even at Eucharistic Adoration, we are perpetuating an adoration that takes place at Mass. We're acknowledging the real presence of Christ within the Blessed Sacrament. But there's something different between that, uh, sitting before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, and the Mass itself, what takes place at the Mass. There's something active and permanent where eternity is entering into time and that we are entering into that reality at Mass that is different than simply our sitting before the Blessed Sacrament. That certainly has immense value for us, and one can feed into the other. Our time spent adoring the Lord in adoration allows us to enter into the, the Paschal mystery that's celebrated at Mass more fully, but it's not the same thing. And this is what Gordini, again, is trying to help us enter into and understand. The sacred act of the Mass is translated into symbols, and it is not a play, but liturgy. Uh, the, and 
this is where we've gotten hung up in, I'd say, in the last 50 or 60 years, that liturgy loosely, uh, if you go back and look at the etymology of the word, sometimes people will describe it as the work of the people. And it's, it's really this uh, a lack of clarity. It's work for the people, that there's something that is being done there for us and for those for whom we, we celebrate the Mass. Let's say if we offer the Mass for someone, as we do here at Mass, we announce the intention of the Mass. It's being offered for them, that the graces of the Mass would be in a special way applied to, to them or the intentions uh, for which the Mass is offered. So praying for the dead. And so there's, again, something much different that is taking place. It's not just our work something that we're doing. We're not simulating, we're not putting on a play, that God is acting. And we are invited to participate in that in a very intimate way. And you can see where there would be a huge difference within that, because if it was simply our work, what we were doing, then we would see great variance over the course of time, and people would take liberties, and it would depend upon the priest's personalities and the different things that he wanted to do within the Mass itself. It's actually a real problem that exists within the life of the Church, but I think it's a failure to understand the distinction that Guardini is making here that's led, led to that experience. Whereas the, the liturgy, the Mass should be something that there are permanent symbols that make present to us in a very real way Christ, where we are acknowledging that eternity is entering into time in this unique way in the Mass, and that those symbols remain the same and take on certain meaning for us. So the chalice is more than a cup. That might have been what was used at the Last Supper, but it's taken on a meaning for us now because of what the chalice contains. The, the person celebrating the Mass is uh, not simply an individual, but a priest ordained for that particular purpose who acts in the person of Christ. And so we're being drawn into this permanent reality that Christ has created in a specific way so that it might endure over the course of time. So in a sense, the, the church is essentially conservative in this regard. And I think this is a sense that we've lost as well, that we preserve things as they, traditions, as they've been embraced and celebrated over the course of time. And what Gardini is going to unfold for us uh, is why that's so, why the church is essentially conservative, and why we perform these particular actions in a certain way over the course of the centuries. And we can see where we lose sight of this, the way we celebrate the liturgy begins to devolve. It does then depend sometimes on a priest's personality or his oddities or things that he thinks should be added here, here and there, emphasized or de-emphasized. And I think it becomes very disorienting to those who celebrate it. Uh, and then people want to go to a particular parish because that priest celebrates the Mass in a particular way or the music is done in a certain way at that parish. And instead of there being this sense that it's not just this individual character of the priest or the parish, but it's really what Christ has established 
that we that is that there is something being done for us and we are being invited to participate in it so there should be a kind of solemnity with which we enter into that reality not uh, not not a lack of joy but a solemnity in the sense that we realize that we're entering into something godly or that the divine has come into our presence and entered into our presence like in no other way in our experience as human beings through the mass. And that should affect the way that we enter into the chapel, the way we prepare ourselves, and the way that we engage in the prayers. Okay? So I know it's still a little obscure yet, but Gordini will will lead us there. Gordini ties it explicitly to the incarnation When God's Son came to us, he did not reveal himself directly as Logos, that is the word of God. He became man. Here in a man's human body lived divine reality, a reality which did not manifest itself in mysterious radiance or overwhelming power, but which was translated into the body, gesture, word, act of the man Jesus. In that man, God was heard and seen. The St. John vividly expresses it. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. The mass moves much along the same line. The bread assumes a new special aspect. It becomes host. The cup becomes festive chalice. The table altar place of the presiding master we have in the place of the presiding master we have the delegated priest the words spoken no longer spring from immediate feeling and inspiration of the officiator but are strictly prescribed Jesus memorial strictly prescribed Jesus memorial had to assume this form if it was to remain permanent part of the believer's Christian life so Going back all the way to the Incarnation becomes very important. I think for us as Catholics in general, this is what establishes our sense of a sacramental worldview. God took upon our flesh. He became one of us. He revealed himself fully to us in his only begotten Son. And he redeemed us in and through the cross, but also has given us these means through which we experience that redeeming grace, the the sacramental life, that when Christ ascends to heaven, the reality of the incarnation, as it were, does not cease. Christ remains present with us in and through his body, and he continues to act in this concrete way. As Christ forgave people, so now through the sacrament of confession in this concrete, tangible way, the forgiveness of God is offered through the priest who is delegated to act in the place of Christ. In the same way, the Last Supper that Christ celebrates with his disciples, this was not a one-time event, but this is something that has been meant to be perpetuated for the church and that the church would continue to experience throughout the ages of Christ giving himself, his body, blood, and soul, and divinity to us in order to nourish us to eternal life. And so in order for that to be something that endures over the course of the centuries and does not simply shift according to whim 
or the taste of a particular generation, which again, unfortunately, I think we lost sight of and did take place. There was this huge experimentation that took place with the liturgy. And when that happened, I think this fundamental aspect that Guardini is laying out for us is lost, that something permanent is established and is not to, to be altered because what we ex experience through it is not man-made, but rather is given to us by God, by divine prescription. Specific words are, are said. There's a specific form that is used. Take, eat, this is my body. There's a specific matter that is used, as we've discussed. So bread and wine, we do not alter that because to alter that is to deform it and to make it something that is invalid because we are altering it in this imperceptible way, in a way that's not in accord with, with Christ, with what he established. So you sort of get where, where he's leading here. Again, the, the essential conservative nature that we must have in our approach to the liturgy. It's not saying that certain things cannot change or that say that there's a development in music and liturgy or architecture that is reflective in a, in a sense of our identity as, as Christians. Certainly there is room within the liturgy for that, but in its fundamental aspects, both in terms of what God has given to us and in terms of how we participate in that reality, we have to have a very clear sense. And he'll go on to tell us it has to be something that's conscious for us too, in terms of our participation, what we are entering into, and what that means for us as human beings, not only in terms of what we receive, but our responsibility in terms of how we live our life, because we become what we receive. And so if we lose sight of things, if it simply becomes our engaging in this kind of passion play, that we are simulating something that took place 2,000 years ago, then the sense of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but also the sense of what we become, the dignity that we take on in receiving the Eucharist, as well as the responsibility to live a certain way of life, can be diminished very easily. Suddenly it becomes a social gathering, a kind of communion in the sense of our gathering and together in a loving atmosphere, but it can simply end in that reality rather than a radical communion that is established by Christ, not only with each other, but with God. So we don't use that, lose that human element in, in sense of the, the union, communion, the love and the joy that we have with, with each other, but it's always seen in and through this lens of what God has done for us and made us in and through the cross, but in the way that the cross is perpetuated in our life or where we rather we experience the fruit of the cross through the, through the Eucharist. It's challenging. Because then all of a sudden, the, the way that we prepare for Mass, what, how we are thinking and engaging in our prayer has to change. That we cannot sort of enter into the reality unprepared in mind and heart, but rather with this, this, uh, this clear understanding of what we are participating in. Let's see, where do I leave? The words spoken no longer spring from an immediate feeling and inspiration of the officiator, but are strictly prescribed by Jesus Memorial had to assume, I'm sorry, Jesus Memorial had to assume this form if it was to remain a permanent part of the believer's, believer's Christian life. 
The task of the believer then is a great one and must be renewed daily to avoid distortion. Here Gordini says, the believer must also follow the translation into symbols of everything that is taking place. When we watch a person we love, we do not merely observe his expression and gestures. We try to interpret those external manifestations of what is going on within. Here we have something similar, only greater. In his presence, his, that is Jesus' followers, should not merely reflect on God, they should behold God with the vital gaze of the new man. The liturgical action of the Mass is a formal rendering of Jesus' act of making his Father visible. So, you know, when we're looking at someone, that's a great example, when we're looking at someone we love, and they have a certain expression on their face, immediately we begin to interpret those expressions or actions because we know them well and we're seeking to understand them. That's part of the union and communion that we share with them. Similarly, but only, Gordini says, in a far greater way that when we come to celebrate Mass, we are to, to see within these things Christ making visible for us in this radical way the face of the Father. That in Him and in and through this act of the Holy Eucharist, we are gazing upon God in this concrete way. The Father is made known to us. The love of the Father is made known to us. And that's something that, uh, that nothing that we could do could accomplish. Like even with something like the Way of the Cross, which is beautiful, one of my favorite devotions. That devotion and our making use of our imagination uh, making use of even our, our, our feelings as a part of that devotion can be a very powerful thing as we enter and go through Lent especially and we head towards Holy Week. There's something about meditating upon our Lord's way of the cross that it is very piercing, especially uh, Alphonsus, uh, Alphonsus Ligorius, right? His, his uh, uh, Stations of the Cross, so be- beautiful and so piercing, but as beautiful as they are, and as exceptional as they are, they are incomparable to what takes place in the Mass. That that reality does not make eternity present to us in the way that the Mass does. And so what Gardnerini is saying is when we're at Mass, we have to be able to make a conscious distinction there. We have to see that something extraordinary is taking place. That God is becoming present to us in a way that he, he, he doesn't in other forms of prayer. And so it elevates. This is why we would say as Catholics that the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our, our faith life and our worship. That this is the high point for us because of what God is, what is God is doing in that moment. And we've heard those words over and over again, but I think we, we sort of will interpret that, is, that there's something important here, or that this way of praying is important for us. But we can still fall back into this way of thinking, that we're simulating something that took place 2,000 years ago, and maybe we are receiving something significant there in the host, but still we might not be capturing 
the, the full power of what is being made present there at the altar. If we understood it, we would probably tremble at, at that reality that we are all, find ourselves in the presence of the divine. Okay. So that's my, my little introductory section. Probably confuses things more. We should just start skipping over these sections. But we'll move on to Gordini now. And as always, I'll stop after each paragraph or so and I'll open it up for uh, questions, comments, including for those online. So you can type in your question and Emily uh, will let me, let me know it here as we move along. Holy Mass is the commemoration of the person and the redemptory destiny of Christ. There are various forms of commemoration. One is that of monument, the constant reminder to forgetful men of something that has been. This great form of commemoration is used chiefly to simulate, I'm sorry, stimulate the national or ethnic memory. Rare, but more also impressive, is the memorial in which something transitory by nature is given permanent form through the continuation of its action. For instance, the memorial flame, which carefully guarded in some sanctuary, burns unceasingly. That would be like the tomb of the unknown soldier, right? Isn't there a flame that burns there eternally or perpetually? Essentially, something that expires quickly, flame is the symbol par excellence uh, of the the self-consuming. Here, its natural action is brought to a standstill, remaining just active enough to attract the attention and stir the mind. Water may be used similarly, the play and rustle of a fountain acting as a perpetual reminder of something past but unforgotten a symbol of unstinted generous service. Whatever form it takes, a commemoration of this kind has the basic characteristic of something continuous, unchanging, that steadily holds its ground in the passing flow of life with all its haste and inconstancy. So as human beings, this is sort of part of our experience of ourselves, that we want to hold in our memory things and and historical events and individuals that have great meaning for us. This is why we make things like statues and why we have something like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and with the the, the perpetual flame there or something like Mount Rushmore even too. And uh, so we're we're holding in mind with, with a kind of permanency there for ourselves to commemorate the important memory of these individuals or certain actions that took place. So this is very important for us, sort of a collective memory that we have, and ethnic for us at times, you know, tied to certain countries of certain significant events. And you can see what's taking place in our own day and how it's evidence of a kind of breakdown of culture itself. You know, that there's this kind of uh, rewriting if you will, of history, even of negative history, but a sort of tearing down of these monuments, a a deconstructing of history, but also a a destruction of monuments that call to mind the memory of specific events. And this is a dangerous thing when that happens because then you can lose sight of history. 
that, uh, and that's where there's a kind of foolhardiness, I think, in the tearing down of these <laughs> statues based simply on one aspect of them. And it may be a significant aspect, and we don't want to uh, uh, sort of minimize it in any sense that some, for example, some of these individuals, founding fathers, had slaves. They were slaveholders. And so, but certainly they represent in all of what they did something far more that is part of our collective memory uh, as Americans. And so when you begin dis destroying these, these things, you're also destroying something fundamental to our ethnic memory as a group. And so the answer to that would be to build other memorials that sort of capture the fuller aspect of that history if we wanted, not to destroy things. I think when, uh, in certain cultures in particular, when they want to wipe out the culture that was uh, sort of held sway for centuries, one of the first things they'll do is tear down, look in the Middle East at certain times, they'll destroy century old, centuries old, carvings and, and, and monuments. And it's or, in order to wipe out the memory uh, of, of that particular culture. And I think we see this kind of spirit taking place, uh, you know, certainly in our culture as a whole, but even within in the church itself. Uh, when you have a sort of, you know, you're told, well, the church is not a building. Well, that's true. You know, we're far more than that reality. But when we start destroying certain significant uh, uh, structures that are, are part of our, again, our collective memory as Catholics, or when it happens through something uh, like the burning down of the, the, uh, the church in France, the large one that Notre Dame, right? Even atheists were coming out and weeping at that site. You know, the church collapsing in upon itself, understanding that it was part of the collective memory of the French people. Even though many of them have left the faith, they still understood enough that to lose this, this structure, this monument of their history was a devastating reality. And so already Guardini is sort of laying this important foundation for us that's rooted in our very humanity and the way that we perceive and experience things. Having uh, this strong memory of, of certain things is key for us in terms of understanding who we are as human beings and our, our participation in reality as a whole. And when we start, when we start destroying symbols or breaking down symbols or losing our, an understanding of the meaning of them, then we lose a lot in the sense of our understanding of reality, our capacity to understand reality. And so what can take place is a kind of collective uh, so, sort of psychosis that will take place at times. Like we, we talked about this in some other groups, that when there's a breakdown, say within the family unit, and say there's a, an absent father that, that exists, or, and no other father figures that come in to play uh, at that point, that, that, that dyad that exists between mother and child, you know, there, there's something illusory about it. Mommy and me are one. 
and the father is the third the tri- in that triad. He's, he becomes part of a, a triad there, and he becomes a symbolic no, that you're not mommy and you aren't one. You're an individual with an individual personality. And uh, that creates obviously a lot of conflicts and there's a kind of rebelling against that that children undergo, but it's essential in terms of two things, their capacity to think about things symbolically. And so their capacity to interpret reality, but also it it breaks down their capacity uh, to understand, understand things morally, that they, to make distinctions between good and bad or good and evil. And so when we see this begin to take place on a collective le- level of the culture, it's sort of a frightening thing that, that what is coming down the line for us as society and as a world. And when we, you see people actively trying to destroy that or say that there's no real significance to that or that we can simply replace it with a kind of reality that we create, an interpretation of reality that we create on our own. But things don't work that, that, that way. We, we cannot just simply create our own reality as much as people would, would like to say, well, this is true for me. Well, not necessarily. It's not necessarily true just because you say it, say it is. Okay, so I know that got a little long-winded there, but this is sort of important to what he's laying out, and it's important to how we approach God as well. He's created us in this way, and so he's going to engage us, reveal himself to us in such a way and, and, and that we can worship him that in a way that has meaning, and that also affects the way that we understand our dignity as human beings. That with the coming of Christ, our understanding of what it is to be a human being radically changes. And in particular, with the, the ascension of Christ, where he ascends to the Father, but bearing our humanity, transformed, resurrected, but nonetheless bearing our humanity. So our humanity, our human nature is, is elevated now to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity because the Logos became flesh. He took our flesh upon himself, not only redeems us, but raises us up. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. We becoming one body with him and receiving the Holy Eucharist are destined to share in that reality and its fullness. We already share in it now. We We become part of the life of the Holy Trinity in receiving the Holy Eucharist, but we are going to experience that in all of its fullness in the kingdom of heaven. And so these are not ideas, these are not symbols, these are not ways of worshiping that we can change without great jeopardy, without losing a sense of our, not only our understanding of our dignity as, as Catholics, our, what it is to be a Catholic, but our dignity as human beings in Christ. If we just jettison all of this, then we lose something rather significant. Okay. It would be perfectly possible to commemorate the Lord in this fashion. Indeed, it is often done, for example, on a mountain peak or at some other significant spot where a cross has been erected. There, the cross is not only a sacred image, 
It is also a monument. But in the Mass, it is different. The memorial that Christ established is commemorated in the form of an action, which itself commemorates an event or series of events, the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. So, that unlike going, uh, going up on a mountaintop and praying before a cross, that's going to be a monument that's going to call to mind for us Christ's crucifixion in a good way, that we can meditate upon that and have that bear fruit. But what he's saying here in the Mass, that there's something, an action that's taking place that makes present to us the Paschal mystery, the, pa the, the dying and rising to new life, the, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ becomes present to us in this moment in a, in a way that is often very difficult for us to understand. To be rendered present, not only as an act of the mind or heart, but in its full, own full reality, this event must be represented in the form of an action which begins, unfolds, and ends. Into this passing act, so perfectly expressive of our own fleeting existence, steps the eternal. Thus all that exists in absolute permanence in God is packed into the brief span of an earthly event. So think about that for a moment, what he's saying. That everything that is permanent about God, the fullness of God in his eternity, becomes present to us in this act. It has a beginning and an end, as the Mass does. So it's a specific event that we are entering into with certain actions, certain symbols that are clearly understood. But in that, by God's mercy and by God's grace, God becomes present to us in his fullness. So again, it's not something in our mind, it's not a thought, but it's this reality that is made present to us at the altar. And so when we, we begin to strip things down in any number of ways, say if we, minim, minim, we become minimalist, and we want to get through Mass very quickly and just get it in and out of Mass, then on some level we're communicating that we, we don't understand what's taking place there. And I think this is where we see a diminishment of the sense of Catholics having of, of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. I know some of the studies vary in terms of the percentage there, but it's a fairly large percentage of Catholics who don't believe that Christ is truly present in the Holy Eucharist. It's a frightening thing in and of, in and of itself. But uh, you know, the, the more that we lose sense of this and we become minimalist, the, the more that that's going to take place. That if we understand this reality, then the way that we worship is going to take on a certain form. If we believe that, un, unlike anything else in our life, God in his fullness is becoming present to us. All that is permanent and eternal about God becomes present to us in that moment at the altar. Then the way that we are celebrating that and the way that we are entering into that and seeing ourselves as participating in that is going to radically change. It's going to be reflected in our architecture. It's going to be reflected in our music. 
It's going to be reflected in the, the vestments that we wear, the postures that we take during the liturgy. Everything is going to be reflective of our understanding of that reality. So one has to wonder when we see the, the kind of banalizing of the Eucharist and, and of the Mass, if we're losing this greater sense that Cordini is talking about. And the more that that takes place in and out, a matter of convenience or fast food, like driving through, uh, you know, a drive-through, that uh, that if we're, we haven't lost the sight of that, that we wouldn't do that with anything else that's significant in our life. If, if uh, a son or daughter gets married, you're not gonna ask yourself, well, how can we do this as quickly and as painful, <laughs> painlessly as possible? And, you know, so 15-minute marriage, you know, kind of thing like that. And uh, you're going to want to celebrate it in such a way that it does become something that's etched in the memory because it's going to be the sort of the, the starting point for, for them and their life and their identity, the new identity that is being established for them. And... Uh, and so I think we see that happening with so many different things, but especially with the Mass. And uh, it's a hard thing to restore once it's been lost. But look at us, we, we've been speaking, talking for a couple of years now, going through this one little book of Romano Gardini and straining, striving to sort of grasp all these different aspects of the Mass that he's been talking to us about in order to gain this clear understanding. But it's one thing even just to have an understanding of it in our mind. It's another thing to enact it in our day-to-day -day life, how we go to Mass, how we pray and see ourselves, and especially how we see ourselves after receiving the Holy Eucharist. But when you think of the Church as a whole that has moved in this, where there's been this fundamental shift in the way that we view the celebration of the Mass, how do you, how do you right the ship or how do you help this pendulum swing back to the middle where it needs to be? Maybe there was a time where, uh, say, the liturgy, there were all these accretions and people really didn't understand what they were doing. And so this sense of, of what Gardini is talking about could be lost as well in the minutiae. The mass could be reduced to those realities and performing them correctly. And often the Latin Mass was said just as quickly by priests who didn't know Latin very, very well and were mumbling it in such a way that not even the servers could understand it. So just going back to celebrating the Mass as it once was isn't a cure-all because it's not necessarily going to communicate the greater reality that Guardini is saying here. He's, he's telling us there's something here that's taking place that is absolutely transformative, where we are being drawn into the divine life and we become God via participation by grace. And that should be reflective in how we celebrate it. So how do we, how do we come back to a place where we, we need to be? Smallish, I think, uh, slowly and within the families uh, is where, where it takes place, how it's communicated at home. And to be honest with you, where, where you take your families to Mass. And I, again, I would never say that lightly because I, I never want to encourage people to Mass shop. 
but I, I think there are such issues these days where what some of what Gardini is saying is complete, can be completely lost. And it can be more of a distraction and a source of frustration and anger for people than it can be a, a place, a source of worship for, for them. And so I think we need to find a place where there's a kind of reverence, at least a reverence, devotion, and dignity. And that doesn't mean it has to be elaborate, but there's a, a reverence, devotion, and dignity with which the, the liturgy is celebrated that captures this in, in some way. And it's hard because there are forces within the church, too, that, you know, whether knowingly or unknowingly, struggle against this. And, uh, and I think it is sort of the whole spirit of the, uh, not just within the church, but of the culture as a whole, that has led to the casting off of this understanding of ourselves as human beings, especially in relation to God. And that's permeated the church as well, you know, to make it more accessible, but in the way, in making it more accessible, we're at times losing the very essence of what we're celebrating. And so we need somebody like a Guardini or some of the saints that can articulate this uh, with uh, this kind of clarity that opens our eyes to it again, and in such a way that we crave it and want to foster it in our lives. So basically, the, the fundamental point of this is that eternity enters time. And if we can remember one thing from this group, we, we would want to remember that. Any comments or questions before we Yes? So, I think uh, just thinking about what you were saying about the, it seems that you know you were talking about the mass that potentially can be reduced to very parabolic form, which to me means that there's some essential components of the mass to make it a valid mass, right? And you can reduce it to this very short form and still make it a valid mass, and then you can put other what you call accretions on, right? And uh, it can take different forms depending, like, the, you have the Roman Rite, you have the Byzantine Rite, you have the Maronite Rite, and even in, I think, Sair, they have, you know, a different Rite where they worship in a very different way. That's right. But uh, I was thinking that that, what you call, you were talking about that reverence, can look very different depending on the culture. Like in Sair, they dance and, you know, they play their drums and, you know, that's that's how they celebrate the Mass and that's how they're reverent to the Lord in that very effusive way. Whereas in the Roman Rite, maybe, you know, that's, uh, we are reverent in a different way. But there seems that there's some scope for freedom depending on the cultural components of where you're at in the temporal, uh, the time in which you live. Some scope. You know, it's interesting. I was reading some things from uh, Cardinal Seurat, who, who is an African, and uh, even sees sort of the cultural differences there. And he's very cautious about that, you know, in terms of certain expressions that really might not, add, they might be an expression of human emotion uh, and, and be very powerful for that reason. But he says we, we even have to be kind of cautious in that regard in order that we don't lose the fundamental solemnity that is tied to what God is doing. 
that the that the mass forms the culture, not the culture forming the mass. And so, while there is what you you know what you're saying is absolutely right that there are these all these different rites within the life of the church that are reflective of the culture, and you know the Eastern rites in particular. Uh, there's you know far more chanting and singing involved and in sense I can iconostasis all these different things uh, but even Cardinal Seurat, uh who was the head of the congregation for uh, I'm sorry was it for worship right who was you know he said you know we, we have to be very cautious about that again that even what is a significant part of that culture, and a significant part of, of people's celebration of things that are important to them, that it doesn't form and shape that liturgy to such an extent that it becomes unrecognizable. That there are certain elements that he'll, he'll go through here and already has touched upon that, that must be maintained uh, in order that we don't lose sight. Again, that it's not our work, that it's what God's work for us, it's a work for the people in order to transform, transform us, and so we have to be careful. And even what we would acknowledge as being legitimate, that it does not alter things to such an extent that it becomes unrecognizable from what Christ instituted. And I think there has been, you know, a greater leeway with that. And I think this is, was Cardinal Seurat's point. You know that there have been liberties taken with that in various cultures and in various times that he said, says we, we really have to look carefully at to make sure that it isn't altering altering what Guardini is talking about here. Okay, so we might be able to circle back around to that after we look at some of the other things that Guardini tells us here. Did I see another hand? Yes, Carol. Uh, I was thinking, um, when he talked about, uh, well, at the very beginning, your reflections about entering into the Incarnation, I think it's so powerful because it almost reminds us that whenever we step into the Mass, we're stepping outside of time and space. And I think if we kind of keep that in mind, that um, we're not in time when we're at Mass. We're not going to be looking at the clock or, you know, sometimes like I'll walk into Mass and... I have all these thoughts going through my mind, but as soon as it starts, I I have no concept. Like sometimes I'll walk out of there and be like, wow, an hour and a half went by and I didn't even notice it, you know? And I think that's kind of like the, the attitude that we need to have and like he's talking about the symbol of water and everything and walk in and, and dip our hands in the holy water. It's a reminder of our baptism and all that stuff. And I, there was something so powerful about that where it was taken away from us. Um, when the churches first opened up, I really um, I missed that because of that reminder. Like even we brought our own and we were blessing ourselves. But there's something powerful. I don't know what it, about dipping into a font that everybody else is dipping into. But I don't think of it as a germ factory. I think of it as something that, that unites us in our common baptism and it reminds me of the incarnation because that was. That's the beginning of our life in Christ, right. you know, and it just, there was something so powerful about the common font that I really missed that. And 
Well, I actually think the first thing you said is actually the, even the more important thing is time. That, that the way that, that time sort of controls us now, like we've moved to be very conscious of time and the way that our life is structured is much different now too. Even with things like electricity and all this, we've talked about this in some measure before, that things used to follow the cycle of the day and things like that. And now with electricity, people work all different times of the day and the stay up all night and all these kinds of things. And But time, you know, having a watch on being conscious of time and squeezing things in, into a certain amount of time has become more and more important for us. And that if, that affects the way that we approach liturgy often. That people want to squeeze it into what seems to be a reasonable time in their own, a reasonable amount in their own judgment for given, given over to worship. Whereas sometimes in the Eastern liturgies, you don't get that sense of it. And either do they, they step out of it, because if you've been to an Eastern Rite liturgy, they can go on for like a good three hours. And they, they pay it no mind. It's exhausting to them. Sometimes they're sweating bullets and they come out of it wiped out, you know. But it will go on for three hours. And I think there is this sense, a uh, different sense of time, but also, you know, the, there is this kind of constant ch chanting that takes place that is reminiscent of the, the constant worship of the angels in heaven. So this connection between heaven and earth that takes place for them, the iconostasis too. So this awareness that they aren't celebrating in isolation from the church as a whole, the communion of, of saints. And so they are able to make that shift from their day-to-day -day life into this worship into liturgy and I think part of it is even language that we refer to the mass as mass and uh, it arises out of you know going peace the mass is ended you know it's so it, it's like a, you know uh, sort of like a nickname almost for what it is that we're doing but it's really the, the liturgy and when you lose the sense of it being liturgy you know, this sense of, of uh, work for the people, but in particular that is divine, what God is doing for the people, then you become, again, very focused upon time and getting through it in a way that doesn't overtax people. And you, if you're a Latin Rite priest, and even Eastern Rites are experiencing this now because often their parishes have become so, so Latinized over time here in the West, uh, that there is this pressure to get mass done in a certain amount of time. So if you preach too long, or if you say a, uh, the longer, a longer Eucharistic prayer, people will go nuts if you go an hour and 10 minutes. But the Eastern Rite priests are telling me that I know that there's often this pressure to cut out parts of the liturgy in order to squeeze the time down into an hour. So to get the, to celebrate the divine liturgy into what people are used to, and so it's again it's the culture forming again how people are worshiping rather than our understanding of what's taking place there forming how we how we worship, and so that did, didn't develop just as you know because people like to pray for a long time. I think it, it developed out of their understanding of the reality that they are entering into that is different than Kronos, 
you know, time on our watch, our experience of time, but we are drawn into this eternal reality where time, you know, this time as we experience it changes, we, we enter into this experience of the life of God. And so again, our, our worship should have, be reflective of that reality. And you know, a lot of priests, I mean, priests have been formed like everybody else in the church. And so a lot of priests would balk at celebrating liturgy in that way too. Uh, you know, where it, it takes on this fuller form because we can become minimalistic too. You can treat mass like I've got to get through this and get on to something else that, that I have to do. And so it becomes a part of a list where it's an equal thing on that list to get through rather than being the most significant thing in our life and everything else follows and fl flows from it and follows after it. Okay. So we'll move on just to see what Cordini has to say here. The believer's participation is likewise an act, not a mere beholding and adoring, but cooperation. However inviolable from the standpoint of Christian teaching, the adoration of the Eucharist is, and however fundamental and necessary the clear position it holds against error, there is a danger of it forcing the basic active nature of the Lord's memorial into the background of the believer's consciousness. Now this might be jarring to people a little bit because what he's saying is that Eucharistic adoration has this extraordinary value that it confirms within us the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. And so it should lead us to the celebration of the Eucharist in a far more powerful way. It's confirming in us the, the truth of our, of our faith. But he's saying that it does not have the same thing that Mass has, which is this specific action that's taking place that we are cooperating in. So at Mass, we're not simply observing in a passive way that we are cooperating and engaging in this act that's taking place and engaging God in this very active way. And that doesn't mean reading at Mass or becoming an extraordinary minister or anything like that. It it's means how we are participating and cooperating on a spiritual level, that we are fully invested in that event that has a specific beginning and end, okay? So he's not knocking Eucharistic adoration here, but he wants us to understand that it's not the same thing as mass. When the host is exposed for adoration, it gives an impression, an impression of permanence quite opposed to the act of Jesus' commemoration and to the, which the believer is meant to enter and in which he should actively participate. In what form does the sacred act take place? It would be natural enough to take Christ's command to do this literally, even in the external sense, and simply imitate what the Lord did on Monday, Thursday. Countless examples of commemorative folk customs and festivals the world over testify to man's fondness for dramatization of historical events. Christian too, thought too, has expressed itself dramatically time and again. 
We have only to consider the age-old devotion of the way of the cross originally practiced in Jerusalem itself, where Christians piously retraced the actual path Christ took from Pilate's Praetorium to Golgotha. Jesus' bequest that the Last Supper and its imminent death be commemorated could easily have led to the perpetuation of the communal meal in its original form, the agape, the meal of brotherly love, immediately followed by the celebration of the Eucharist. In this form, it actually was celebrated for quite a long time. However, abuses cropped up very soon, and to judge from the sharpness of St. Paul's criticism, they must have been grave. And so I won't read through this passage here. I'll leave that to you. But Paul rebukes them that that they were treating this meal in a way where those who had more were not sharing it with others. And so there was a breakdown of charity there that then also affected the way that they celebrated the Eucharist. That breakdown in charity then in this agape meal then made them, when they were coming to receive the Holy Eucharist, receive it unworthily. They weren't discerning what was the real body of Christ in that, and so they were eating and drinking to their condemnation. So Paul is very strong in rebuking them for this, that this sort of joint meal that was attached to the Holy Eucharist was a part of it. They they would gather together to celebrate an actual meal together that then would lead into the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. But all these inequities begin to develop, that begin to distort what it means to be a Christian, but also what it means to celebrate the Holy Eucharist. And so Paul is is every bit as sharp with them about this as he was with those who wanted converts to Christian Christianity to be circumcised and first to become Jews, Jews in the sense of their practice of the faith. So very angry because they were going backwards in their worship of God, not forwards in terms of what God has made possible for them. The oft-quoted words about eating and drinking judgment do not refer, as they are frequently thought to, to the wrong done by those who receive the sacred food in a state of serious sin, but to that attitude which makes the sacred meal the opposite of what it is meant to be, an expression of love between those linked by faith. What each believer brought was to be shared by all. Anyone who preferred to eat his own food should take care that it at least would not differ conspicuously from the rest. Indeed, the wealthy flaunted delicacies that embarrassed the poor, and one had too much and the other too little. Such lovelessness is the sin of unworthily eating and drinking the sacred nourishment of the Lord. Behind it lies the other wrong. Emphasis on the physical nourishment obscures the central mystery of the feast. Such then, the consequences of the imitative form. So, the imitative form breaks down. You know, that this agape meal that was to be a reflection of their communion as Christians linked by faith immediately began to break down not only in terms of his connection to the Eucharist, but even how they were celebrating this love feast, because there was such inequity there that they were humiliating the poor. So how could they do that and then go celebrate the the Eucharist when we are radically then bound together in Christ? 
So almost at the very beginning of the church, you see the importance of understanding what Christ established and how when the church lost sight of that, right from the beginning, it caused, it wreaks havoc. It begins to split the community apart and they lose sight of who they are as Christian men and women. So it makes you read that passage in a little way, in a little different way, because we tend to read it, oh, they were receiving the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin, and so that's why Paul is condemning them. Of course, we shouldn't be receiving the Holy Eucharist in a mortal sin, but that's not what he's talking about here. You know, he was talking about this breakdown of their identity, their fundamental identity in Christ. It's an important thing because people often use that passage as a hammer, you know, to rebuke people. And I think it's with this sense of wanting to protect the dignity of the Holy Eucharist, you know, and that it would be received worthily. But I think it's important that we honestly read what Paul is saying here and understand the context of it. There was something greater even not just the particular actions of the people, but greater happening to the whole Christian community was splintering because of how they were acting. Any thoughts or comments? Yes. Getting back to the correlation and significance of the celebration and affecting of the Eucharist at Mass as compared to Eucharistic adoration, I look at it as a parent, you know, I... I love my children and want to spend time with them, but there's nothing that compares with being present at the birth of when they came to be. Is that a pretty good analogy of what we're talking about? Right, yeah. And, you know, I think there are other ways of, you know, showing that too, like in our day-to-day life. You know, it's one thing for a parent to be proud of their son who's an athlete. It's another thing for the, the son to look out into the stands and see his father and mother watching pridefully. You know, it communicates something different. Their involvement in the life of their son is much different there. It's not abstracted. You know, and, you know, so... You know, this is, these are all very human realities. And God created us. And so the way that he gives us also the means to worship is reflective of who we are as human beings. It makes sense. Even that he gives it, gives us, helps us to worship him and then receive him in the context of a meal. It's a fundamental part of who we are as human beings, that we receive food in order to live, to survive. And it's through receiving he was the bread of life that we are nourished unto eternal life. And that we become companions, you know, those who break bread with companions with each other, but also with our Lord in the most profound way. You know, he breaks the bread, allows himself to be broken, and in and through that we become united to each other. So that's why you can see why Paul becomes so angry, because this fundamental aspect is is lost. This mutual love and respect. Where did I leave off? 
in imitative form? Is that where I stop? Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts? Uh, I was yes. Just gonna say one, of, one of the best moments I've had this year is at the Ash Wednesday service. The, the priest said, I know some of you are contemplating leaving before, leaving after you get your ash. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the plan. Leave now. Well, I think that's that is part part of the breakdown that we've talked about in terms of understanding what's going on there because ashes are actually a negative sign, a negative symbol. They're a sign of our mortality. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so, to want to be remembered on that at the beginning of a penitential season makes sense. What doesn't make sense is to receive that and to wear it like a badge of honor. You know, we're receiving it in a penitential sense, you know, that we are, because of sin, we're in a fallen state and we experience our own mortality. And that it's the beginning of this movement toward God of repentance. And then, you know, ultimately, we should be moving to the divine physician to receive the medicine of immortality, what cures us of that reality that we just spread on our forehead. So it always burned me up that whole ash tag thing where people would post photos of themselves because it becomes separated. It becomes an expression of Catholic identity, but a distorted expression of, of Catholic identity. And you can't say that to anybody because then you come off as this mean old curmudgeon if you, you know, if you start saying anything about it. But it, I think it is a reflection of what Guardini says. We get so off, off path here that we begin to emphasize lesser things and ignore the things that have greater weight. The memorial of the Mass is celebrated not in the form of a play, but of a liturgy. The object commemorated is not imitated, but translated into symbols. The procedure is divided into several parts. The first part of the Mass consists in readings from Scripture and prayers corresponding more or less to the psalms of praise and the host account of the Exodus at the beginning of the Passover meal. Then in the offertory, the gifts of bread and wine are prepared. This is reminiscent of the disciples' preparation for the Last Supper described in Matthew. Immediately after this, Jesus' institution itself is carried out, blessing, thanksgiving, and the sacred meal. The original form vanished. No longer is there a table around which the faithful gather, and its place stands an altar. And however close architectural arrangement has permitted it, it still remains essentially separated from the believer. At the altar stands the priest, opposite him, united as congregation, the believers. There are no bowls and pitchers, cups and plates on the altar. All these have been concentrated into paten and chalice. And even when they are shaped to differentiate sharply from the customary instruments in daily use, I'm sorry, and even they are shaped differently. The priest partakes of the sacred food and offers it to the believers in a manner entirely different from that of the ordinary meal. And for the food itself, its form has become so spiritualized that one can almost speak of the danger of its being unrecognizable as bread, which is sometimes true. I mean, the host, you know, often is 
one wonders is that really is that really bread? But uh, but you see what what he's getting at here that it, it's even done in a way different than what Christ in the way that Christ did it. That all of these actions of Christ have a symbolic meaning, and certain symbols then are embraced as part of the form in which the Eucharist is celebrated to emphasize that for us. It's not just a table, and it's not just the Passover meal that's being celebrated. Now, it's an altar, and the one who is offered is Christ himself, who's both priest and sacrifice. And standing in his place, in persona Christi, is the one designated priest. And those who receive from the, the table are part of the, the body of Christ, and they receive him now in this specific way, in this specific form and matter. It's bread and wine, but it's taken on a certain shape and fashion. It's distributed in a chalice and made into a host, all to make clear to us that there's something unique in what we are experiencing, not just bread and wine. You know, and it's not just the master or the father of the house that's celebrating this communal meal. It's a priest designated to offer what Christ offered himself, and that's what we receive. And so everything that we do and everything we use should be reflective of that reality. You know, people think that there's a greater fidelity in going back to simplicity, that, well, we should be using you know, this very simple wooden cup, you know, that somehow that would be closer, because that would be closer to what Christ used. But what they're failing to understand is what Gardini is saying here, that we are not just mimicking what Christ did at the Last Supper. We're doing it in such a way that the reality of that is made present to us in a way that we can understand symbolically that the chalice now and the patent and the host and the priest vested, all of this tells us that this is a radically different moment for us, where God is making himself present. And so you, you know something's off when people are saying, you know, that, you know, emphasizing things for the wrong reason. We, we should turn things around or we should make it more like a table and have everybody, everybody gather around and, and a lot of that kind of stuff went on in the 60s and 70s, you know, because there was this sense that that's what needed to be be done to make it accessible. But what was being, what was happening was a casting off of the very things that would lead us into it more deeply. It's those very symbols that we use that help us penetrate the mystery that we are participating in. If we banalize them and we just turn them into what we use every single day, then we lose this sense of the, the radical otherness of what it is that we're doing. You see what I'm saying there? Sorry. <laughs> Dangerous of having a beer. It drive me nuts. <laughs> hey, David. Yes. Um, blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. Mm-hmm. In the writings, um, saw that um, that the chalice was very large and very tall and imposing. It, it you know it wasn't just this little wooden cup. So I just 
you don't mind me adding that, that it may have been, you know, it, again, this is mystical uh, visions, but it may have been somehow given um, from Melchizedek or something like that. So it wasn't just this, like, it was a, 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 this amazing chalice. Right. You know, yeah, a mystical like, experience and a private revelation, but yeah. one that is formed by Catholic consciousness. You know, she lived in a time where there was still this sense yeah. of that. And I think it's harder now for our generation where so much of this is broken down to recapture it. And it seems a little foreign to us. You know, an interesting experience is an ordination liturgy because people rarely experience that in their life unless they know someone specifically who's being ordained. But that liturgy is magnificent. You know, and this symbolic meanings are so powerful in it. You know, the prostrations that take place, uh, the the deacon when he's ordained is given the, the book of the gospels, the, the priest has placed in his hand the patent and the chalice. You know, all of these things heighten everybody in the congregation, heighten everybody's experience of the extraordinary thing that's taking place, that this person is being ordained now to fulfill this function with these particular things that are some symbolically point us to the reality that we are celebrating in the Holy Eucharist. And for that reason, it is one of the most powerful liturgies that people experience. So if you ever have the opportunity to go to an ordination mass, go to it for, for that reason. Yes. I think one of those. Oh, you jumped over. Oh, you were going to go there. So adding to the whole reason why we don't use a cup and instead we use a, a gold-plated chalice, and this is for me personally, like the beauty and like the magnificence of like the chalice and the fact that it's so like kind of out of the ordinary has really helped me growing up to understand that what's happening isn't ordinary. Like that's God. Like what the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. That really helps, like you said, penetrate and understand that this isn't just a piece of bread, this isn't just wine, this is Jesus' body and blood, soul, divinity. And like people wanting to try to make it more like like a table, like we all get around the table, mm-hmm. trying to make it all us all kind of get together, like you said, is very likely lead to us losing that sense because the separation of the priest from the people and the out of the ordinary investments and the altar and all that, it, it's really for is a connecting point for, for the faithful to really understand what's taking place. That's right. On that exactly. Altar. You know, the, the the priest at that moment becomes an icon of Christ and that can that can be broken down very, very quickly when we sort of set aside all of these things. There was a time, you know, I had uncles say uh, that there was a time when nobody was allowed to touch the chalice other than the priest who was ordained for that purpose. And, uh, and so, you know, all those things were pulled aside because I think it was seen as a kind of clericalism and paternalism. 
and in some sense that had infected the church. You know, this kind of false elevation or unnatural elevation uh, of the priest, idealizing, idealizing or romanticizing of that. Uh, but, but, you know, you don't swing in the opposite direction where you lose sight of what he was ordained for. And that, that's not clericalism. It can switch the other way, clericalism in the, from the opposite direction. It's, and and in, in my opinion, like that kind of reverence of, of like following priests like, to a certain extent, there's a lot of touch and chalice. It's it's also kind of like a recognition of the fact that that's that's now a very sacred object because of what it held. That's right. right. And the same thing even with this the the priest hands. You know, even what that communicates to him in terms of how he lives his life, what he engages in, you know, is very, very important. And that's captured in uh, some of the younger guys getting ordained have, you know, taken hold of that again, that a lot of these things that were cast off. Like when a priest's hands are anointed, they're wrapped with a cloth, and then the excess oil is left on a cloth, and then that cloth is given to the, the mother and she's buried with it, you know, because she gave birth to one who's then ordained an anointed one of God. And similarly, the the stole that the priest hears his first confession with is then presented to the father uh, and buried with him, you know, because he's the one who, you know, raised him, you know, to have sort of like this sacrificial uh, 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 view of things, and you know, in terms of his care of the family of the church, and so again, a lot of those things were cast off as if they had no meaning. And when you, you just stop and slow down a little bit, you think, wow, that, that's beautiful. And you should hear when 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 those were presented to the parents, everybody that was there, like the family, extended family, the impact. That that has on them, you know, uh, just in, in the sense of the significance of the event that just took place, and I think it also then leads people to pray for the priest that they recognize then the significance of that identity that is being taken on, and the weight of that, and the grace that is that is needed. And so when you strip all that away and you try to make him, him the normal Joe, or when the priest tries to play the normal the normal Joe, sorry to any Joes in, in the room, but, <laughs> uh, you, you get what I mean. When he tries to be everybody's buddy, then there, there's something that, that breaks down there. Not that you know he should hold himself above every, everybody, but there should be never a time where a priest sets aside his priest priestly identity that's that's right you're a priest for forever and so whether you're going out bowling with people you don't or you're going to a movie you know i know priests who don't want to go to a movie in clerics because they they don't want to be identified in that role well if you don't want to go to a movie in a clerics and you're clerics you probably should not be going to see that movie if you feel uncomfortable seeing it in your clerics where you have to shed your priestly identity again i'm rambling on yes i find that the many times of mass i got the i don't know i'm lacking reference my mind wanders or many times i'm not really there mm-hmm. 
And I, I think I promise because I don't really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, you know, have tried to read a book here and there, but by the time I get to, get to mass, it's all gone. I think what would help is, you know, from the from the standpoint of the faithful, just like they do with the priests in training, seminarians, as they learn about the mass, you know, right? I mean, they actually go through a role play of the mass and say, this means this, this means this, this means this, and so on and so forth. So actually, I think that what would be really helpful is to actually go through uh, a mass, I guess it could not be a real one, but at every step, say this is what this means this is what is happening right now and this is your role as the faith you may hear what, what what's happening and what the role of the priest is and so on but you know i would also like to know what is my part in that what should i do what should i think how should i participate in a concrete way right that's right well I, this the guys who work with campus ministry in particular they do that a teaching mass you know, where they take the students through and even describe. You can't assume anything any longer in terms of knowledge of what is going on or even what's being worn by the priest. And so you're right to make it something more concrete. And it's for this reason that I chose this book. uh, And I'm not afraid to spend years going through it because it's worth it. If this is the most important thing in our life, then our, our setting aside an hour or hour and a half a month, you know, to go through it in detail in order that these things might become ever so real for us and internalized, it's worth it. You know, because a lot of people would probably look at this and say, you mean you've been ha- having a group talking about the mass for two years straight? You know, doesn't that get boring? Well, maybe it does for some people, but it, it hasn't for me. This is more than I got out of seminary. This group has shown me and, and, told, and instructed me more about the liturgy and helped me understand more than four years of seminary. I'm sad to say. In fact, if we just read this one book in seminary, that's why I think it's sort of, you know, sort of the, the movie Goodwill Hunting. He said, you know, you just wasted $50,000 or $100,000, you know, to pay to go in college where you could have gotten the same education, you know, by a library card and reading, reading the right books. I almost feel that way. You know, if you read The Fathers and you, you read the books that have a certain quality that take, that take you right to the heart of things. Our education has become so bizarre now. It would be better with like tutors and more practical, as you're saying, uh, that, that leads us into the, the mystery, but also helps us to live it. So it's not just abstract. Yeah, exactly. Excuse me, what, the, what did you say was the name of that ministry that actually does the teaching this? Oh, the campus ministry here. I mean, I'm, I was just saying that they do that with the students periodically and like on a retreat or something like that where they'll go through each parts of the mass even just to describe and RCIA will do that too especially with those coming into the church even in the sense of showing them the tabernacle and discussing with them in the, the monstrance we have students who come here who never like what's that up on the altar because they never experience adoration in their par- parish or like benediction there's a lot of people now that have never experienced benediction we should probably move on I know there are some other comments I'm sorry where did I leave off can somebody help me here uh, it is important yeah, 
Okay, so I'm going to move through this. I, I'm sorry, uh, I have it, it, we're running a little long, but uh, I'll move through it. Uh, it is important, really, to understand this process of translation from one sphere of reality to another. It exists not only here, if man lives a soul, but the life of the soul is not of itself visible. It is unable to express itself alone. To do so, it must first become gesture, act, word. It must translate itself into the language of the body in order for us to grasp it. Herein lies the true essence of what the German calls Lieb, the vital unit of heart, mind, and body, as distinguishable from the mere physique. Lieb is not only a vessel or an instrument, but the visible manifestation of the soul. In Jesus, this relationship, relation between body and soul reappears in sublime form. When God's Son came to us, he did not reveal himself directly as the Logos, he became man. Here, in a man's human body, lived divine reality, a reality which did not manifest itself in mysterious radiance or overwhelming power, but which was translated into the body, gesture, word, and act of the man, Jesus. In that man, God was heard and seen, as St. John so vividly expresses it. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this reality, again, that we see take place in the incarnation of how God manifests himself to us, that it wasn't just in this, uh, you know, show of power, you know, that he truly humbled himself, emptied himself, took upon himself our humanity, and engages us in these specific actions and gestures that we might come to know and understand the love of God in this very concrete and tangible way. So, so different from how God had revealed himself up to that point, that in a full way, God manifests himself to us in his son in and through our human flesh. And the way that we celebrate liturgy should really be cognizant of this as well. This specific acts, gestures, realities that make this reality concrete to us. So it's not just an abstract reality. This is when I became Catholic, this is what opened up a whole new worldview for me. I was raised Presbyterian, and so there was faith there, understanding of the, the importance of the scripture, but no sacramental worldview there in the sense of understanding the incarnation, what takes place there when God takes our flesh upon himself. God is revealing himself to us in a way that he never did before and permanently changes the way that we understand God, the way that we worship God, but also the way that we understand ourselves as human beings. So everything, you know, I, I didn't know squat about Catholicism, but once I began to perceive the, the sacramental worldview, first by going to Mass with the students and seeing everything focused upon the altar, how they were all as, as one body focused on what was taking place at the altar and on what the priest was saying there. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before. And it was that one thing that opened, began to open up the sacramental worldview, that there was an encounter there with God 
that I had never experienced before, that was so tangible and concrete, compelling. And so if we want to evangelize, it's not through a program and anything like that. We should be bringing them to liturgy where they could have that experience that we experienced. They might not understand a lick of it, but it doesn't mean they don't perceive something extraordinary taking place there. And they should see it in us, how we are worshiping and how we are participating in that event. You know, if we celebrated the Eucharist believing what we say we believe, then somebody seeing us should be converted to the faith and want and desire what we have. And essentially, this is what Guardini is trying to communicate. It's not a passive participation. You know, we, again, we think of participation and we have to be doing something. No, it should be our entering into that reality that communicates everything about who we are as human beings and who we understand Christ to, to be. That has immense power, and we often diminish that. You hear similar things where, you know, soldiers, when they're putting to death martyrs and they see their faith and their love of Christ, they are converted on the spot and they go to martyrdom too. You probably heard these martyrdom stories. It's a similar thing. They see that faith so concretely, that love of God so concretely in those who are going to their martyrdom that they're moved to belief in Christ. The martyrs might have said nothing. It's just how that they were, how they were going to the martyrdom itself. We focus too much on talking. <laughs> I know I should shut up now, <laughs> but I'm not going to. So just hold on a little bit longer. <laughs> the mass moves along much the same line. The event which took place in the room of the Last Supper was in the form of the Passover as it was then celebrated. Jesus sat at table, about him the members of his household, the disciples. He took off a loaf of bread, broke it, and spoke over it certain words in the language he ordinarily used and in the voice usual to him in particularly solemn moments. He handed the pieces to the guests just as he had done earlier in the meal and during the Passover celebrations. He took the cup, also as usual, gave thanks, spoke the words of consecration, and handed it to the disciples. They ate and drank as they had always done. All this had the immediate form of daily reality, which it preserved for some time. But gradually, it assumes a different form, the liturgical. Now the action loses its directness and becomes ceremonial and measured. At some points it only suggests, at other times, at others, it elaborates on the essential, piously enclosing and veiling it. The bread assumes a new special aspect. It becomes host. The cup becomes festive chalice, the table altar. In place of the presiding master, we have the delegated priest. The words spoken no longer spring from the immediate feeling and inspiration of the officiator, but are strictly prescribed. Jesus' memorial had to assume this form if it was to remain a permanent part of the believer's Christian life. 
in its imitative form, it could have been celebrated only very rarely. Frequent repetition would have caused it to slip into the bizarre and embarrassing. In its liturgical form, it can be celebrated at all times, on festive as, as on ordinary days, and in all situations, whether of sorrow, joy, or need. It has now become genuine daily service. So permanent, repeatable, daily. That if we were told ourselves simply to trying to do it exactly as Jesus did it, you know, with his disciples, we would never have been able to take on this form of the liturgical, ceremonialized, in such a way that it could become a permanent part of our lives as Christians, and as he says, could be celebrated at all these different moments of our life. So whether a time of joy, a big feast, or a time of sorrow, a funeral, you know, or just in daily ordinary life, it can be celebrated and we can enter into this reality because it has taken on this form. And if it didn't, you know, we would see all kinds, as he says, all kinds of bizarre things emerging. Everybody claiming that they're doing what Jesus did or something closer, a closer approximation of that. Whereas what we see develop in the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is this movement toward liturgy so that it could be celebrated in this permanent, repeatable fashion. And that's not something that hems us in. It's something that frees us. You know, I think sometimes people feel that, you know, by holding on to tradition in this way and celebrating the Mass every single day in this way and hearing the same readings over this three-year cycle, that somehow, you know, we are limiting ourselves, limiting our worship, you know, that we lack freedom. So maybe somebody from more of an evangelical background would look at that and it would seem very foreign and stiff. You know, you get what I mean? But for a Catholic who understands this, we say, no, the fact that it is repeatable and it's permanent and it can be done daily because it has this form, it gives us freedom, freedom to enter into it because we're not thinking in our minds constantly about how we need to recreate it. We know how it's done. We know what it means. And so we can enter into it unimpeded. Our worship, our worship becomes unobstructive. We can immediately enter into prayer because we know, know what's coming. It's only when they start playing around, you wonder, well, what's, what's the priest gonna do next? Or what odd thing are they gonna do this? this week, then it throws the whole thing off. You know, when, or when somebody gets up there and starts making announcements at the beginning of the Mass, telling you that everything that's coming up for the next month, it's like, you don't start liturgy in that way with announcements. In fact, announcements should have no part of Mass at all. Yes. <laughs> but you see why. Not just, again, not because I'm a curmudgeon, but it's because it's, it's foreign to our understanding of what litur liturgy is. We're there to pray, not to talk about upcoming events, bake sales. <laughs> okay. Or the bulletin. That's right. That's what the bulletin's for. Read the bulletin, which nobody does anymore. That's why. 
<laughs> of course, like any other characteristic form, the liturgical too has its dangers and it invites independent development according to its own laws. Then the ritualistic action threatens to stifle the actual sacrifice and the essential can be discerned only with difficulty through a tangle of forms. Moreover, the disparity between the liturgical and the realistic forms may so far remove the principal event from ordinary existence that it loses touch with everyday life. Not infrequently, these dangers have become reality. For this reason, the business of liturgical work today is to do everything possible to present the original form in its clarity and power. So, there can even be accretions that take place that even distort things where we try to make it too elaborate, you know, in this attempt to solemnize it. And so that it becomes, it in and of itself can become indistinguishable from what Christ did. Because we, had, and I think that's what was happening. You know, people weren't able, they weren't understanding what was taking place. They didn't hear the prayers. And sometimes the prayers were being rushed through very quickly. And so there was this disconnect that was taking place. And I think this is what the council was meant to try to address. It, was, it should have moved to this kind of formation of understanding so that those realities could be entered into fully. Some of the accretions could be set aside. But what we saw was the church and members within the church take the easy route which we always do, we're lazy son of guns, you know, that will throw away everything that's beautiful to try to make it simple because we don't want to do the work of actually understanding. It becomes easier for us to strip it down to nothing. And so that, you know, there's nothing difficult there for us to wrap our minds around or to enter into, no mystery to have to find ourselves entering into and being drawn into. And that's a terrible thing to happen, but that's part of human nature. And we, we have to stop being lazy. Like nobody's going to give you this. We don't have nuns teaching in schools anymore. There's not this formation that takes place over the course of life. Most religious formation, as we talked about before, stops at confirmation. Now it's baptism. You know, that's the sacrament that meant that those at the marginalized Catholics will often just quit there. They'll baptize their kid and they will go to church less and less. It used to be confirmation, but this, this is where sort of a falling away of the church has taken place. But it can't be just the throwing back old things at people. There has to be a kind of formation understanding so that it can be embraced fully. You know, if we were to throw ourselves back in the 50s, we would probably be, I don't know, I think people have this tendency to romanticize and idealize what, what went on before the Second Vatican Council. But, you know, the problems that we have now started far before the Second Vatican Council. And so if we were to, like, time travel back there, we, we probably would be disturbed by a lot of things that we saw going on during Mass, or other things within the church, too. So we can't be simplistic about it, we can't be lazy about it. So, the believer, is that where we're at? Yes. Is faced with an important task, 
And this comes back to Andreas, you know, what do we do? You know, what's our, that of discerning the essential and what the, meets the eye. In the altar, he must see the table, in the priest, the head of the congregation, in the host, the bread, in the chalice, the cup. He must recognize the Eucharistic supper in the sacred act with its strictly prescribed wording. It is not enough, however, dev however devoutly, to keep up with a mysterious celebration's prayers and hymns, readings and acts of consecration and offering. The believer must also follow the translation into symbols of everything that is taking place. When we watch a person we love, we do not merely observe his expression and gestures. We try to interpret those external manifestations of what is going on within. Here we have something similar, only greater. Speaking for himself and his fellow apostles, St. John says, I write of what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we've looked upon and our hands have handled with the word of life. Life was made known and we have seen and now testify and announce to you the life eternal which was with the Father and has appeared to us. What we have seen and have heard we announce to you in order that you may also have fellowship with us and that our fellowship may be with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that you may rejoice and our joy may be full. The passage is very important. Jesus was the living epiphany of the Son and in the Son of the Father. He himself said, He who sees me also sees the Father, sees me, sees also the Father. How canst thou say, Show us the Father? The repro reproving tone so shows how essential was the point to which Jesus was driving at, and how evident it should have been. In his presence, his followers should not merely reflect upon on God, they should behold God with the vital gaze of the new man. The liturgical action of the Mass is a formal rendering of Jesus' act of making his Father visible. So, Jesus reproves them. What do you mean, show us the Father? That in him, in faith, they should have seen clearly. And in a similar way, by our embracing in faith all that has been revealed to us and celebrating the Mass as it should be, we should see directly what Christ has done, but we should see God in it. And so all that we do you know, should be, a prep, again, a preparation for our entering into this reality. This is the most significant thing in our whole life. And so we cannot spend too much time preparing ourselves for it. And we should be praying, too, that God would guide us into it, that we might perceive with the eyes of faith what we need to see, the vital, that we might develop that vital gaze that Gordini is talking about here, a living gaze, so that we're not just cognizant of the consecration taking place, or the you know offertory and things such as that, but we are we see clearly what God is doing in that moment and what is taking place for us. That we're able to translate, as he says, those symbols in our mind, and, and that would become natural for us. So it should be instantaneous for us. You know, we, we our formation gets to the point that we see it 
comprehended. And that's where the depth of our faith comes in. Faith is a kind of knowing. And the deeper that faith is, the more that we're going to see in the Mass what we are supposed to see and meant to see. You just cleared a, a mystery for us. Really I hope cool. so. I hope I didn't convolute it. <laughs> Make it more mysterious. <laughs> so, Guardini made us work here tonight. And I'm sorry about the length. This is probably the toughest reflection that we've had to go through but in some ways ever so important. Because the word, even the word liturgy, I think is hard to wrap our mind around it. We hear it used all the time. But I, again, even in seminary, I, I don't think I, I heard it or understood it in the way that Guardini states it here. Enough to be as compelling as it needed to be. Thank God. Thank God that he provides for what is lacking so often for us. Okay, any final comments or questions? You held together pretty well. Your head's only bobbed a few times. (laughs) Otherwise, you're right with me. (laughs) Okay, why don't we uh, close together with a prayer to St. Philip near our patron.